The Sunday Review with Tim Graham. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Sunday Review. Today we find out about Food Waste Action Week and the steps we can make to stop food being binned unnecessarily. Ollie Warburton and Leslie Vaughan will be joining us to tell us about the Cat's Whiskers Rock and Roll Jive Club. And if you run a small business, we've got details on the help that's available from Santander. We've also got an excerpt from a new book by a local author, Gerald H. Thornhill, about their personal experience with stage 4 lung cancer and the treatment they received with the NHS. Samantha Day talks to television presenter and journalist Kay Adams about the importance of getting our hearing checked, and Carrie Overton chats to Danielle Peters from Body Health Gatwick about the work she does. All coming up in this edition. This week was the third Food Waste Action Week in the UK, which aims to raise awareness of the amount of food wasted in households and promote ways to reduce it. According to new research from Love Food Hate Waste, a quarter of the food we cook ends up in the bin because we prepare, cook or serve too much. Now, in conjunction with TV personality Jordan Banjo, they're calling on people to win Don't Bin by using up their uneaten food. To tell us more about the campaign, I'm joined by Helen White, an expert on household food waste. Helen, welcome to the show. Can you tell us a bit more about Food Waste Action Week and what you're hoping to achieve? We are focusing this year on some really practical advice to help with that preparing, cooking and serving too much. So as you've said, we estimate that a quarter of all food waste that arises in the UK is for that reason. So this means that we're either making too much or you know not making the right amount in the first place but then if we have made too much we aren't using it up and that's really good food that could have been eaten that needs to be going into bellies and not bins and there are some really simple things that you can do to make sure that you're making the most of every mouthful of those lovely leftovers because you've spent money buying it you've spent time cooking it and energy, of course, you know, energy costs are, are expensive at the moment as well. All that has gone into it. So actually, it makes a load of sense to make sure that you eat that, that last bit, that last portion, and really enjoy it. Quite right. Now, there's a number of things you mentioned there. Uh, overcooking is one of them. Have you got any tips on how we can avoid making too much in the first place? So there are some things on the Love Food Hate website that can help you to do that. But what we're focusing the campaign on is that the bit at the end, and this is really good because it's a bit of a get out of jail behaviour, this one. If you have bought too much or cooked too much, it's right at the end of the journey of the food through your house. And this is the bit where you can stop it from going into the bin. So... What we're asking people to think about is about storing those leftover portions safely. So you need to pop them into an airtight container with a lid and you can store them in the fridge. You can use those within two days. So those are perfect. You know, if you want a free lunch the next day, that's absolutely the best place for it. If you think that you're not going to use it within that time, you can pop it into the freezer. You need to make the freezer your friend. That thing in the corner of the room, it's really, really useful. You can save most leftovers. You can freeze them in there. You need to label and date it so that you know what you've put in there. And then it comes to the defrosting. And we know that some people are not as confident about defrosting. But again, if you use that microwave, it's coming into its own. It can save you time. You need to defrost on the defrost setting and then you can reheat till it's piping hot and you've got that free lunch. You know that phrase? There's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, there is. <laughs> it's probably in your freezer and you can use it at work or at home. 
and and that means you can free up some time to do the things that you love and that's what the surveys found now you mentioned obviously that food costs are quite high at the moment people are increasingly looking for ways to save money on their grocery bills have you got any tips for us about what we should be doing when we're shopping to to save money and eat more sustainably so a really good thing that you can kind of bear in mind whilst you're going around doing your shop is that if you buy what you need, you're more likely to use what you buy. Because if you if you don't follow that kind of that rule, you're going to end up with the, the extra food. Now, luckily, we can help at Love Food Hate Waste with the advice that we've just spoken about. But actually, wasting food is is not only bad for, for the planet, but it's really bad for your pocket. You've just mentioned their food prices. Food inflation is running at over 16% and two thirds of the people who uh, we questioned in the poll, they noticed the cost of their food bill rising considerably. So by doing this, um, it's a really good way of saving money. It's also a great way of saving time and you're, you're doing your bit for saving the planet as well. I know that the research also showed that 80% of us feel guilty about throwing food away, but 70% would be more likely to use their leftovers if they could turn them into something tasty. Have you got some recipes on the website that will help us take those raw ingredients and, and leftovers and make them into something more appealing and reduce food waste that way? Yeah, the recipes on the Love Food Hate Waste website are all focused on this um, way of cooking. So using stuff up. There are loads of recipes on there, loads of inspiration for helping you to use up the food that you have bought. Whether you've cooked that into a meal, there's advice on how to uh, look after it safely and reuse it. Or whether you've got, you know, those random things that you have in the fridge and you need some inspiration to put them together. The Love Food Hate Waste website is Full of all those practical tips that can help you to reduce food waste in your home and save money. You've obviously had a lot of activities over this last week, but I'm guessing that you're wanting people to turn this initiative into a longer term commitment and really make a difference individually and in their communities. What other sort of things are you doing to help support that goal? We can all play our part and do something as individuals. And I think that's really important. When you think about the fact that we waste the equivalent of 4.4 million potatoes a day in the UK or 20 million slices of bread, you can see how the small things really do add up. You know, it's just a sort of mouldy potato or it's just a, a, a bit of bread that's gone a bit, a bit stale. Those are the kind of things that when we put them into the bin everybody in the uk that it starts to add up into into those huge numbers that i've mentioned and yet it's something that we can um we can do we can buy what we need as we've mentioned we can store our food correctly make sure it's stored in the right place so it stays fresher for longer and we can use up our food in the way that we are talking about for food waste action week loads of information a fun quiz and lots of other things www.lovefoodhatewaste.com forward slash fwaw which of course stands for food waste action week brilliant helen thanks so much for joining us and telling us more about this year's campaign thanks tim if you'd like to find out more about Love Food Hate Waste's easy hacks and serving suggestions, visit lovefoodhatewaste.com forward slash FWAW. That's lovefoodhatewaste.com forward slash FWAW. 
We'll post the link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on Facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. Now, if you enjoy dancing and love a bit of rock and roll, then the Cat's Whiskers Rock and Roll Jive Club could be for you. With me to explain more are Ollie Warburton and Leslie Vaughan from the club. Welcome to the show, both of you. Ollie, if I can start with you, could you tell us a bit more about the history of the club and how it's evolved? Well, a dear friend of ours, Rocker John, as I was introduced to him as, um, was a Croydon boy and moved his way out of the you know suburbs of the city and started the club, I believe, probably 24 years ago. Is that right, I think, Leslie? Something along those yes, lines. about 24 years ago now. And um, bless him, he's sort of, you know, coming up sort of 80, 83 years of age, still rocking and rolling, and he's actually who taught me. So it was sort of, you know, between me and Leslie, we, you know, it was at a point that the club was going to shut um, due to one thing or another. And, yeah, sort of I think we're now probably looking near the best part of, well, well over 10 years anyway that we've been doing it. You've clearly both got a passion for this. What do you think makes Rock and Roll Jive such a popular and enduring dance style, both within your club and more broadly across the country? Well, I think um, the music is very, very uplifting. Um, it's a lot of fun. You get to know a lot of people. Um, and it's really good exercise, but you don't realise you're exercising because you're having so much fun with it. Um, and there's some very, very good rock and roll bands around at the moment. So it's just really win, win, win. You mentioned about the fun that you have. How would you describe the community and atmosphere within the club, Ollie? Yeah, it's great. You know, um, you meet a lot of friends. I mean, I've, I've actually been dancing since, you know, doing jive since I was 13, 12 and a half, 13. Wow. Um, so I, I started going to the club as a, you know, my grandmother started taking me due to mutual friends, you know, with at vintage rallies and things. And I thought, oh, I remember coming back from um, one of these vintage rallies and saying, God, you won't believe it. There was, you know, there was a DJ that was playing, you know, 50s rock and roll. And we've got family members, you know, who are in the traveling fairground community. So I've been brought up with the older generation. And that's the sort of music that I was brought up with, you know, 50s and early 60s. So... It, you know, everyone knows it, don't they? You know, you, you can you can put on an old record from Bill Haley or, you know, Elvis or Chuck Berry and people, or Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, everyone, and everyone knows it. You know, there's the old sort of party favourites, isn't there? You could call them as. Um, yeah. And it's just, it is a, such a brilliant atmosphere um, for all ages. I mean, rock and roll hasn't died. If you go down to the coast, Lansing and Shoreham, it is very much still well and truly alive, you know, up up here it's a bit slower but you know down there you've got a wide variety of ages from you know little seven-year-old kids jiving right up to people in their 90s you know it's such a vast age range um and people from all walks of life yeah and everybody that comes to the club say what a friendly club it is and the people are all very very friendly aren't they yes we've always been very lucky with people who come to the club what do you particularly like about it, Leslie? I just like the social side of it, the exercise side of it, and just that I love the music. Uh, you know, we just really, really enjoy rock and roll music. Now, you're obviously a club for people who enjoy jive. Do you also teach newcomers how to dance? 
Yes, we teach people how to jive and people come who have no no knowledge of um, rock and roll jiving and we start with the beginners and we teach them um, week to week and then they gradually build up their moves and are able to join in and dance with all the rock and roll. So talk me through how somebody would learn to jive with you. We start off in uh, with a first class um, where we show people basic moves um, and then we have a track we teach them a little routine which they can then dance to um, so we have three tracks that they will dance to with that. Then we have what we call strolls, which we teach afterwards, um, which are a lot more, they're like you do it in line um, and you don't need a partner for that. Um, and then we have a second class, which is a little bit more um, advanced than the first class. Challenging, yes, a little more challenging is a better word. So aside from the classes, do you run any other activities or events over the course of the year? We used to hold about four dances a year where we would um, get a rock and roll band um, and then we'd have that as a dance a dance evening. Um, we've done a few um, schools where schools have wanted us to go and dance um, to just show people what we're doing. Doing the band nights, it gives, because um, we do have a bit of a structure of how many weeks, you know, for sort of like a beginner. And normally what we try and do, you know, with having these dances throughout the year that are held by us or the, or the club, um, it gives someone who's totally new to it something to aim for. Um, you know, it's not obligatory that they have to attend. But, you know, if someone who's totally novice and you know, as Leslie said, has never come into contact with rock and roll. Um, you know, when you say sort of like, look, you know, by this date sort of thing, we're going to have a, a live band. You know, it's the closest thing that you're, you know, in contact to, to what it would have been, you know, from a lot of rock and rollers back in the day of, you know, jumping their old cars or which weren't old then and motorbikes and sort of going, going to a dance on a Friday night or a Saturday night which still happen regularly now. You know, really, if you if you get really keen into it, you can go dancing mostly, you know, most nights in during the week and certainly on the week, you know, weekend. So if somebody's interested in trying out Rock and Roll Jive for the first time, how can they get in contact with you? Well, we have a Facebook page, um, which is a Cat's Whiskers Rock and Roll Jive Club. We just say to people, come along on a Monday evening um, to the rugby club, East Grinstead, from 8 o'clock, and uh, we're open, open doors. You know, and a partner's not required, and you'll find a lot of welcoming faces, really. You know, a lot of new people that have come in the past sort of, no, you know, what happens if I get it wrong? Well, we've all started... We've all, we've all been beginners. We've all been in that boat. And after the lesson, you know, we call it freestyle dancing. And, you know, other club members, you know, may come across and ask, you know, to sort of encourage you and sort of try and build your confidence up and also help you if you're struggling with something. So, you know, it doesn't matter of your ability because um, that's the whole point of it. You know, you, you, you know, if you stick at it, you will get it and hopefully make some, make some new friends along the way. Brilliant. Is there a cost to coming along at all? Yes. Um, so if you turn up on a Monday evening, as Leslie said, get there for eight. 
Um, we try and start from quarter past eight um, for the beginners class. Um, it's eight pounds. And, you know, you can come and go. There's not a sort of like a, a membership system like, you know, if you sign up for a gym or a social club or something, you know, it's, it's you, you know, pay and go as, as you please sort of thing. Obviously, we've got our regulars that come every week. But, yeah, it's, it's eight pounds and at the rugby club. Just have to bring your own drinks. And some sensible footwear. Nothing too grippy. And equally, you know, don't come in sort of boots or shoes with leather soles. But, yeah, you don't want don't want something too slippy or too grippy. Otherwise, you know, for the ladies part, if they, you know, for trying to spin, if it's a too grippier shoe, you'll struggle. So can you buy special shoes for jiving then? Oh, yes, yes. You can buy shoes specially for jiving. Um, but you don't particularly need them when you first start but like ollie says as long as you've got something that you can turn in quite easily then that that's adequate to start off with but yes they do do special shoes for for um, dance shoes until you're you know sort of if you feel this it's the dance for you um you know a perfectly adequate pair of trainers as i say any anything which gives you you know ankle support but not that you're fighting to twist and spin on um is you know perfectly fine that's great ollie leslie thanks so much for joining me today well thank, thank you, very you very much, much for inviting us along for more information check out the cat's whiskers rock and roll jive club page on facebook or pop along to the east grinstead rugby club on saint hill road on monday evenings from 8 p.m entry is eight pounds we'll post the details on twitter at sunday review 107 and on facebook.com forward slash sunday review 107 for many local businesses this winter's been one of the toughest yet with almost two-thirds of high street retailers reporting that the rising cost of living has made it harder to run their businesses the price of energy and raw materials and demands for higher staff wages are just some of the factors contributing to retailers business challenges now, Santander Bank have launched a free SME support toolkit with a suite of non-financial resources to help businesses not only stay afloat, but grow through the rising cost of living storm. Here to explain more is John Baldwin from the bank. John, thanks for joining me. Now, according to the research you've done, many retailers have had to take out bank loans or dip into personal savings to stay afloat. How is Santander supporting small and medium-sized enterprises during this challenging economic period? Yes, thank you. Thank you, Tim. And thanks, thanks for inviting me today. Um, yes, we, we, there's a variety of ways in which we are supporting this very important part of the economy. And you mentioned there one of our recent, more recent developments, which is our SME support toolkit, which really grew out of some research that we started to do in the middle of last year, as the um, the economic backdrop started to change quite dramatically and was impacting SMEs, born of the rising problems from the uh, the war in Ukraine, increasing interest rates, inflation rising, and a lot of uncertainty around in the market. And we were getting feedback from our clients and across uh, across the sector that businesses wanted support at this time, non-financial support as well as financial support. So we brought together this online resource, which is available via our website. Um, it's essentially free um, and full of a rich uh, group of resources that we brought together in response to the areas where uh, our clients are telling us they want most help. And we've grouped it under three headings. The first is, is managing strategy, which is very much 
pointed at the business owner. Being an SME, running an SME can be quite a lonely business sometimes. And so we wanted to get in there some resources around mentoring schemes, around coaching schemes, and around how to approach the, the subject of growth, if that's what you're, you're looking to do. Um, managing resources is the second heading. And, and in there, there's how you manage resources from, from suppliers, from your staffing, and staffing is an issue that many of our customers have told us is a is a worry to them, both recruiting and retaining, but also how you manage your financial resources as well. So budgeting tools and input from um, people outside of Santander as well. So, for example, the Small Business Commissioner, Experian, experts in their markets have uh, contributed to this toolkit. And the third area, the third pillar really is around managing risk, which is very important from an SME perspective. Um, and helping owner managers to watch out for things like fraud and areas areas such as that scams, and we've got a really good hub there which can help and support businesses as they um, protect themselves against those real threats that we're seeing increasingly uh, online as well as offline. Some of the measures that retailers are saying they're taking to stay afloat include negotiating tougher with suppliers and switching to cheaper energy deals. What advice do you have for other SMEs looking to make similar changes? Well, I think what we've what we've found is that um, the, the about twenty five percent of our respondents said that they were optimistic about their business for the for the um, for twenty twenty three, let alone going further out than that. And we tried to have a look at the, why they were optimistic, and one of the commonalities around their optimism was the adaptations that they have made over recent months. Um, to slightly position their business in a in a slightly different way. Um, so as you've mentioned, they started to negotiate tougher with suppliers. Now, that not only means on price, but it may be on terms. So can you get better terms, help your cash flow? Um, trialing different opening hours is something that, that uh, many retailers on the high street have tried to try and match in with their customer customer needs. A lot of them are looking at um, their online presence, not only their local online presence, and particularly if they're, they're sort of quite a personality locally, there's a lot they can do, they found they can do around that, but also nationally where they can reach into other parts of the UK and, and make new markets. And some indeed that we've been talking to quite recently and the research has shown have ambitions internationally and are realizing those ambitions internationally. And one of our help tools as well is Santander Navigator, which is an, another rich hub of um, of resources for people who are interested in expanding abroad. So those businesses that have made adaptations, interestingly, uh, a lot of them have said that the changes they've made they would have they would have described as uncomfortable in the past, but they've taken it on themselves to challenge themselves and make those uncomfortable changes, and they're being rewarded for it. Now, despite that some businesses are struggling. Many have taken steps to help their local communities during this period of economic hardship. Could you tell us a bit more about the role that small businesses are playing in their communities and how Santander is working to support these efforts? Yes, I mean, this is one of the most heartening um, uh, areas of the research and the findings, which was almost half of the respondents have helped their local community survive the rising cost of living um, over over the winter period and the actions that they've taken are um, donating to food banks nearly half of them have made donation to food banks uh, giving free food and drink 
to people who are who are struggling in the in their local environment and a lot of them uh, about a quarter have donated to local causes um, many of them are involved have initiated or are involved in ongoing fundraising and i think that that anchoring of their business to their local community gives them uh, a lot of impetus um, for the support that they'll get from their customers but also the personal support that the sme owner um, values from being a really important part of their local community uh, and as a bank you know we're very supportive of this of this sme and high street retail uh, group um, our toolkit reaches out to try and help exactly those businesses and as i said at the start a lot of these are free resources which are easily accessible via our website fantastic now if people want more information on some of the topics we've discussed today or to access the toolkits you've mentioned where's the best place to go yeah so if if you choose your favorite browser um, and just type in either santander sme support toolkit that'll take you through to a front page and you can click through and have a look at the resources under those three headings that i described and also santander navigator so if uh, your listeners are interested in looking at opportunities to expand abroad or just explore overseas markets santander navigator has a another rich uh, uh source of resources that they'll find interesting i'm sure that's great john thanks so much for joining us today thank you tim to access the santander toolkits and a wealth of other information to support your business visit santanderbreakthrough.co.uk that's santanderbreakthrough.co.uk and santandernavigator.co.uk that's santandernavigator.co.uk we'll post links on twitter at sundayreview107 and on facebook.com forward slash sundayreview107 on his monday mid-morning show the silver fox has been playing out chapters from an upcoming book by local author gerald h thornhill called it could happen to you it's based on gerald's own personal experience with stage four lung cancer and his treatment with the nhs this week we heard chapter eight describing gerald's time in hospital it could happen to you chapter eight copthorn ward continued the ward nurses change shift at 10 o'clock. The night shift, six or seven nurses are led in by Shivani and they all stop and form a half circle at the foot of my bed. Shivani clutches a clipboard and looking at it tells the group why I'm here, my condition, etc. A lot of medical jargon is involved. I notice Kanyu who catches my eye and gives me a smile before they move on to Matt's bed, which, as usual, has the screen around it. Supper is brought, but I still have no appetite. I manage a little jelly and some ice cream. Blood pressure is taken, temperature, pills, and then a porter turns up with a wheelchair. One of the nurses, Joe, Jim, can't remember, tells me I'm to be taken down to have my chest x-rayed to make sure the cough is nothing serious. I'm disconnected from all the lines, helped into the wheelchair, and off we go, down to the x-ray department. Along corridors, down a lift, past members of the public, visitors, who glance at me, 
curiosity in her eyes. No doubt, Emby are in mine. They are going home tonight, fit and well. I will be here, not so fit, not so well. Now we go through doors, and here we are. I'm parked outside for a few minutes, and then I'm wheeled in. This is where I came for the scan a few weeks ago. I'm x-rayed, and afterwards a different porter takes charge of me. He says, Copthorn, isn't it, mate? I tell him yes, and he lets me know Copthorn is the furthest ward from the x-ray department. I'm not sure if he passes this information on to me to expand my knowledge of the geography of the hospital, or if it's a complaint. Back in Copthorn, Area 4, I am helped back into bed A, hooked up to the drip stand, the plastic bag slowly filling with the contents of my stomach is placed at the side of the bed and I am left to sleep. Thursday, 30th of August. More pain. Not so bad as last night, but intense enough to wake me up. It's 1.30am. It's dark. I manoeuvre myself onto my back and the steady bleep, bleep, bleep of the machine at my side changes to a high-pitched, urgent, don't ignore me, beep, beep, beep. I stare up at the ceiling, wondering if I should use the call button, but I'm saved that decision as footsteps approach. What's the matter, Gerald? A nurse I haven't seen before. She switches the light on and fiddles with the machine attached to the drip stand and the urgent beep, beep, beep returns to the steady bleep, bleep, bleep. Try and keep your arm still or it will go off again, she says. Can you give me something for the pain, I say and tap my chest. When did you last have paracetamol? You can't have more now if it's less than four hours ago. It's more than that. I'll check. I'll come back. She leaves me. I stare up at the ceiling again, trying to concentrate on something other than the hurting, which is now a dull, intense ache more than a sharp pain. From behind the screen, next to me, I hear a groan, then an oath, the rattle of a wheelchair. Matt appears, glides past, stops at the little wash basin by the doors, cleans his teeth vigorously, and then wheels himself out of the area and disappears. It's nearly two in the morning. The nurse comes back, shoots some paracetamol into me. I point to the screened bed next to me. Where's he gone? I ask. Cigarette, she says, or something like it. The aching pain recedes. I fall asleep. I'm getting used to the routine. Blood pressure taken every two hours. Temperature. Isabel with early morning tea. Night shift hanging over to the day shift. Breakfast, though I still have no appetite and only can only manage a few spoonfuls of porridge. Bed changing. Wash. Drug trolley. Drink that water, Gerald. Doctor's visit. A different one today, Mr. Tim Piggott-Smith. How are you feeling, he asked. This is a setback for you, I know, but it will come right. Have you opened your bowels? No? 
Any wind? No. It'll happen. Just give it time. I'm hardly aware of the NGA line down my throat, which surprises me, but the flow through it seems slow and intermittent. The plastic bag at the side of the bed is barely a quarter full. I still feel lethargic and weak, and it's an effort to be social. I haven't spoken to any of the other three patients here, just nodded hello. I still feel ill, not so ill as yesterday and the days before, but pretty rough. One of the booklets they gave me before I came in here said, Most people feel tearful on the fourth or fifth day after surgery. I don't feel like crying, but I do feel depressed. Or maybe I'm just feeling sorry for myself. I've got to snap out of it. Chris in the corner is going home today. Okay to have a shower? He asked Joe, the nurse in charge. Of course, she said. And he goes into the bathroom and 15 minutes later comes out looking clean and fresh and ready for home and shouting, Quick nurse, the place is flooding. Water follows him out of the door, spreading across the floor. Joe is talking to James and she looks up. Oh my God, she exclaims and dashes into the bathroom, shouting, Get a clean up. She emerges a few minutes later, looking dishevelled but triumphant. The drain was blocked, she announces. Lucky my husband is a plumber and I know what to do. At four o'clock, Heather walks in, smiling as usual, though I can see she is still concerned, but, positive as ever, she says, You're looking better than you did yesterday, Tot. I think you're on the mend. I don't feel as if I'm on the mend. I hope you're right, I say. Where's Cyril? We're going to take it in turns visiting if it's all right with you. Me today, your brother tomorrow. Do you mind? No, that's okay, I say. Makes sense. An excerpt from It Could Happen to You by Gerald H. Thornhill. You can catch up on the chapters you may have missed on our Listen Again service, accessed via the on-air menu on our website at meridianfm.com. We'll also post a link to it on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. The next chapter will be broadcast just after midday tomorrow, that's Monday, on the Silver Fox's mid-morning show. It was World Hearing Day last Wednesday. On our breakfast show, Samantha Day spoke to television presenter and journalist Kay Adams, who was diagnosed with conductive hearing loss last year. We know that in the UK there's 12 million people living with hearing impairment and most of those are undiagnosed. Now, as we grow older, would we expect to lose some of our hearing? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess that's natural. Our eyesight kind of diminishes a little bit. We get a bit more creaky. It's a normal process of of life, isn't it? And, you know, if you take the example of your eyesight, if you do start to start holding menus at the very end of your arms and you need another arm to do it, you'll go along (laughs) and you'll get yourself some specs, won't you? And you won't even think twice about it and you'll choose some jazzy frames and you'll think you look terrific. (laughs) <laughs> Similar kind of thing with with hearing impairment. I mean, obviously, there are different kinds of hearing impairment. It can happen at any age. But in terms of, you know, the ageing process, it's entirely natural to think that your hearing 
potentially will uh, be impaired as you get older. Not always, but potentially. It must be important then that we should be having tests. Well, of, yeah, of course it is. And I mean, for me, you know, I, I realised that I was finding myself more and more in social and professional situations that I was saying pardon just too often or sort of trying to lip read, trying to guess where the conversation was going, which is fine for a little while. But then it really did get to a stage that I thought this is not, you know, a sustainable situation. So um, I went along to my local boots in Sucky Hall Street in Glasgow, where I live and, and went in uh, so a guy called Sean, as it happens, and walked in off the street 15 minutes. And that kind of started the, the process because I had been avoiding it, if I was entirely honest. But by going in and just getting an assessment of where I was, and at that point I was kind of borderline, it, it put it into my head. And I thought, right, OK, this is something that I need to be aware of. And then, you know, months went by and it wasn't getting any better because, of course, I was making all sorts of excuses. Maybe I had a bad cold, maybe I had sinusitis, you know, blah, blah. And I realised it wasn't getting any better. So I went again uh, for a second test and it was confirmed that really I would benefit from a hearing aid. And, you know, at first you think, oh, I don't want this. You know, I don't want to wear specs. I don't want a hearing aid. I mean, who does? But... <laughs> Oh my goodness, the initial reticence faded away like snow on a summer's day, you know, when I saw the benefits of having that extra boost to, to my hearing. You know, I didn't have that social anxiety. I didn't have to worry, you know, whether I was catching the conversation. And, you know, I can only say it's been an entirely positive thing for me. Mm, that's good, isn't it? But it's getting people to actually take that step. Well, yet it is. And I would say to people, be an early adopter. And, you know, and if you are listening to this at the moment with earbuds in or headphones, as many people do as we live in this digital world, think about it. What is the difference? I have my lovely little hearing aids. I've got very posh ones, I have to say. Um, <laughs> and so I listen to my podcast through them. I listen to the radio through them. I take phone calls through them and I can hear really well through them. I can go to the noisiest cafe or restaurant with my friends and have have a great time and not sort of find myself thinking, do you know what? I don't know what everyone's talking about here, which is, I, I say that casually, but it's actually a horrible feeling. And it was a feeling that I was starting to have more and more. So why would you want to be in that situation when there are relatively simple steps that you can take? I mean, if you just search Boots Hearing Care, you'll find out all the relevant information and, you know, don't find yourself in that situation sad isn't it you were missing half the conversation when you're sort of perhaps out for a meal with friends well well yeah and the thing is uh, with my parents um, who both passed away now I saw it from the sort of long range view you know they got to maybe their late 70s and they did very much need hearing aids both were resistant as many people are and mm. Often, you know, I would be with them in a social situation and particularly with my dad, I would just see him retreating. And that became more and more pronounced over months and years. And then when he was sort of at that age, close to 80, he was much, much more reluctant to wear his hearing aids and he had become very accustomed to sort of sitting back in the conversation. He, he became a quieter person. He became a less gregarious person, having been incredibly sociable as a younger man. And, and I don't want to do that. 
you know, I, I love chatting to people. I love being around people. I like being in the thick of things. And I don't want to slowly retreat and fade just because I was embarrassed to go and get a hearing test. I'm sure so many people must feel like that. But what are the causes of hearing loss? Well, there can be many uh, causes of, of hearing loss, and that's the benefit of going along to, to Boots and getting yourself a, a, a test. You know, they will tell you where your hearing is. It's a very interesting process, actually, because we all hear different sounds at different levels. They will give you a very, very precise readout of where your hearing is at. And there will potentially be situations whereby they say, right, OK, it's maybe worth you going to see a consultant ENT person on this because there may be another issue. Um, but for a lot of people like me, I I guess um, I've worn earpieces kind of all my professional life. I've worn headphones all my professional life. We live in a very noisy world and I'm cracking on a little bit. Um, I think it's probably just a natural uh, degrading of your, of your hearing. I mean, as a presenter and the things that you do, noise definitely comes into it, doesn't it, with headphones and things? Well, I have noise all the time from the moment mm. I get up to the moment I go to, to bed. <laughs> and, and and we do live in a, in a very noisy world with traffic if you're in an urban situation and people often in, in their work situations are exposed to, to loud noises. Um, I guess I have been exposed over 20, 30 years to constant noise in my ear noise being sound being fed directly into my ear now, just when, one ear okay yeah. is it just one well, mainly yeah, right. on television you wear one ear piece and it's my right. right ear and funnily enough it is my right ear that has much poorer hearing than my left ear so you know you can kind of draw your own conclusions obviously i wear headphones for for radio like you do and sometimes i'm guilty of whacking up the volume too much and i don't know if you do that because you have to be careful of that you really should you know see what well, is a I, safe level yeah. for you to be hearing mm. and because we can access music and of course we all love and adore music so easily now as we're walking around very tempting isn't it to whack the volume up whereas actually you really should know what is a safe level to to be listening mm. to to music at is there a link though between um deafness and mental health um, yeah, I think, well, yes, absolutely. I mean, there's proven research on this. And if you think about it, um, you know, if you are not using your hearing, it, it's a part of your brain, of course, audio signals that come into the brain. If in social situations you're either avoiding them or you're sitting back in them, then that part of the brain is not being stimulated. And it's the old phrase, you either use it or lose it. And over time, that can cause the brain to, you know, stop sending those signals in, in uh, you know, the way that it has been used to and, and kind of close down a little bit. And there certainly is a lot of really um, solid research around the link uh, between um, dementia and hearing um, and hearing loss at, at an earlier stage in, in life. OK, that's interesting. Now, and Boots have done some research. Has that surprised you in any way? No, it hasn't, actually, um, because... I, I, I am that person that they are talking to. You know, 12 million people are affected by hearing loss in the UK and most of those, or a, a healthy proportion of those, are undiagnosed. And I think that does come down to the reticence that people have um, to actually address their, their hearing loss. It's easier to kind of avoid it and try and, and get round it. So it doesn't surprise me because I have been that person. But what is interesting, and again, I have been this person, a third of people 
are aware of loved ones, perhaps older than them, who have withdrawn from conversations or started to lose their confidence in social settings. And so there is a high level of awareness of what can happen when you get older, that sort of withdrawal and and level of anxiety. And yet, I guess none of us want to acknowledge that that might happen to us. And so I think there is a bit of an ostrich mentality that, that sets in. And so what I would say to people is, you know, grasp the nettle here to be very Scottish about it. You know, be an early adopter and don't let yourself go down that path of slowly withdrawing and retreating. Why would you want to do that when you can fix it now? Just walk into your local Boots, get yourself a hearing test and find out where you are. Or, you know, log on to Boots Hearing Boots Hearing Care and, you know, find out all the various ways that, that you can check it out. If you are sort of constantly saying pardon, constantly saying walk, constantly trying to lip read, take the opportunity to improve your life. Kay Adams talking there to Samantha Day. For more information and advice about your hearing, visit bootshearingcare.com. That's bootshearingcare.com. We'll post the link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. On this week's Wellbeing Weekly, Carrie Overton spoke to Danielle Peters from Body Health Gatwick about the work she does. I am a sports therapist. Um, I've been doing that for about uh, 10, 12 years. Right. And I run my clinic in Manor Royal. I'm, I'm assuming that you've always been someone who's interested in sport. Yeah, I I was that kid who was very extracurricular, so I did everything. <laughs> <laughs> I um I was really musical and I was also really sporty. Right. Um, and you know what, when I was, uh, getting to my A-levels, my, my A-levels were bang on split between music and sport. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I'm quite creative in yeah. that sense. Um, and actually my first year of uni, I went and did music right. as my, my degree. And, um, after the first year, I realized that <laughs> there was no career, uh, at the end of that. And, um, I fell back on sports, which is something that I always really enjoyed but yeah it was I, I kind of like go where the wind takes me yeah. they say and what so what sports were you mainly into or were you one of those just any sport I want to play it I think um at school it was probably hockey mm. and then I took up kickboxing when I was about 15 right um it was like an after school club um nothing very special I remember doing like the crouching tiger like with my friends and we just enjoyed it and we did all our belts and and things like that and then um as I went to uni I um went to their kickboxing club and it wasn't quite enough what I needed because I was already pretty good from doing it for years beforehand and the uni club they start from scratch which is cool because they have new students but I couldn't progress and um, searching in the area, I just couldn't find anything. So I went into Thai boxing. So what is Thai boxing? So Thai boxing is, um, it's very violent. Okay. <laughs> uh, so it's very similar to kickboxing, um, except you can use your knees and elbows as well right. as punching and kicks. Right. Um, I, that must keep you incredibly fit. <laughs> yes, sometimes, yeah. And so... When so you didn't take up kickboxing till you were fifteen? Yeah, I was a bit. I mean, it just wasn't a thing. I think um, karate was like the main martial arts when I was younger. Um, but yeah, I just remember seeing a fly come through the register, and yeah. me and my my friend at school were like, "Oh, should we go 
try it and I just really enjoyed it yeah. it was just one of those sports that just captivated me it's really reassuring actually to to hear you say that because I think it's quite easy to think that when you get to 15 or whatever oh I've it's hard to start something new or take up a new sport but you clearly did and and then you know went through all the belts and then what happened when you moved into the tie boxing so tie boxing um I started when I was at uni um this place called St Albans and um I went along and it was the grottiest boxing <laughs> gym you've ever seen <laughs> it smelled it was a bit moldy you went through the fire exit and I just remember walking in but everyone was so nice right um, and I, you know, as a, a girl by myself going into a boxing gym, mm. was quite intimidating, but everyone was super welcoming. Um, they really, really looked after me. And to this day, I still remember that first class wow. and being so like excited at the end of it because I was just so buzzing and getting in my car and just trying to drive away with the handbrake on. <laughs> <laughs> it was really bad. But I just remember like, I remember ringing my mum up and, and going, mum, this is, this is amazing. I love it. Right. And uh, the rest is history, as they say. So then what happened next? You took up your Thai boxing and then where did, where did that take you? Yeah. So I did that. And then I started, um, so you start learning all the moves and things like that. And then the next kind of stage is you start sparring, which is essentially light fighting with some with a partner from right. your gym. And it's just where you can put your skills into practice. It's not beating each other up. It's, mm. it's gent- It should be gentle. Yeah. And then the next stage from that is you go on to something called an interclub, which is sparring, but against someone you don't know. So okay. it's a bit more competitive. Um, but there's no winner. It's, it, it's you know, it's very, um, the level is, is lower um, and it's very safe. So if someone gets out of hand, they'll they'll bring the level back down. So again. It's, is it refereed or umpired? Yeah, so it's refereed, yep. but like in the sense there's no one who's a winner. So even okay. if you clearly would have won it, yep. it, it's neutral. It's just to get some ring experience and under a bit of pressure. Mm. And then from that, I went on to compete. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about that. Where, so where were you competing? Yeah, so I started, um, by this point, I was now doing my master's mm. and I was up in Chester. So I was in a gym called Warrington and um, I started competing there. And it was, yeah, I just, it was just such a buzz. Like um, anyone who does like a solo sport or anything, there's, it's just euphoric. Yeah. Like it's just nothing quite like that tunnel vision in that moment. It's just you, your opponent, and the ref, you can't even see or hear anyone else. It's incredible. So did you have big crowds watching you? Yeah. So they, uh, I think the biggest crowd is probably about a thousand, fifteen hundred, And then maybe the smaller ones were like four, five hundred. So still pretty big. Yeah. yeah. And is this sort of regionally, regional competitions or national competitions? So it's not like other sports. It's essentially like a show. So um, a lot right. of the time they used to be held in like the nightclubs, like um, Liquid Envy. They used okay. to put the ring in the dance floor oh, wow. and then have people around yeah and then um they've evolved into like bigger uh, venues and things so like my, my gym will go to k2 they had recently i think right. they've got one coming up in lingfield um in a couple of weeks right. um you know so beautiful venues yeah um and yeah it's just it's i can't describe how incredible it is it's just when you find something you love you know there's yeah. you just love it don't yeah, you absolutely you did this at uni mm-hmm. then what did you end up doing your master's in uh biomechanics so sports science biomechanics um and I used the Thai boxing to do my final dissertation actually which was really cool what happened next how did you start setting up your own practice 
Yeah, so I moved back down south. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in Horsham, so really right. local. And um, I got a job. I was working with Burgess Hill Football Club as a side thing. And then um, I also had a job uh, working in car accidents, but the medical side of things. Right. And um, basically, I was doing my Thai boxing at Crawley Martial Arts mm-hmm. in Manor Royal. And um, there happened to be an osteopath who was working out there. And he basically moved to Australia with his family. Right. And my coach came up to me. He was like, Dan, you do all this stuff. Do you want, <laughs> do you want a room? And I, I quit my job and I did wow. it. I must have been about 26, 27. I just thought, you know what? I don't have a mortgage. I don't have kids. I don't have anyone relying on me. I'm pretty employable. Like if I need to get an extra job, I will. And yeah, I just knew that I couldn't do it like as a one day a week. It just wouldn't work. Mm. Um, You throw yourself in. And if it didn't work, it didn't matter. Like it was one of those wonderful opportunities. Uh, But yeah, to say that I was destined to set up a clinic, absolutely not. It was... I, like I said, I go where the wind takes me. <laughs> so that opportunity just came up and you thought, right, this is for me. Yeah. So what sort of people come to your clinic and what do you specialise in? Yeah, so initially when I first started in the martial arts gym, I got a lot of the the martial artists. Um, and then over time, I started branching out away from that um, just because like you need to broaden your horizons yeah. a little bit. You can't just focus on one group of people. And actually, you know, for me, it was the runners and endurance athletes. So your runners, your triathletes, your cyclists, they are the people who really like, I work with a lot mm. and um, who I really like home in and all work with. And I, I really enjoy working with them. And they tend to be people who are maybe a smidgen older. Um, you know, they can, they have time to dedicate to their sport mm. and it usually, especially triathlon, it's so mm. expensive. Mm. You know, they can actually put a bit of time aside and they understand they need to look after themselves. Um, I think sometimes in martial arts, we're a bit guilty of no pain, no gain and suffer. (laughs) What, so actually risk injuring yourselves more because you keep going through an injury? Yeah, and maybe not looking after ourselves as much as we should do. I'm very guilty myself. We'd be like, oh, you'll be fine. Because you're just so um, homed in on like mental toughness. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, like if you've got a bit niggle, you'd be fine. But like, I think it's definitely changing, especially right. with the new generations that are coming up, mm. like the younger generations totally mm. get that they need to look after themselves. You yeah. can't just wing it now. So is any of the work you do preventative or do you tend to only see people once they've damaged themselves <laughs> in some way? So yeah, like a lot of my work, I'll be honest, is sports massage mm. and that is mostly preventative. Mm. Um, I also do some strength and conditioning with people as well to try and make them a bit better at sport and hopefully limit injuries. Now, you can't stop injuries. No. They're going to happen. Um, you, you can't control everything. You can't control life. Um, but what you can do is educate. And yeah. um, the best thing you can do is is get people aware of their bodies let them know of what the signs and signals are of maybe a niggle or, you know, if they're feeling a bit tight, maybe they just need to like loosen off and mm. then they'll work a bit more efficiently as well. Mm. I think people are starting to change now and really realise that, you know what, this grin and bear it attitude, like a small niggle, if you address it straight away, probably will heal quickly. Mm. But if you leave it, you know, like months, years, it's going to take that amount of time to recover from because you're never addressing it. So the quicker you deal with something, the quicker you can recover from it. Totally. Like yeah. the, the rule of thumb is um, 
you you get injured because something's happened mm. and you you don't get better because you haven't changed anything right um you need to change something to in order to get those gains again so when somebody comes to you and says oh you know oh, I'm a runner and my knee is hurting mm-hmm. for example what would you do with them how how would you approach <laughs> something like that I mean obviously everyone's individual mm. but um you know the first thing I would probably do is get them in for an assessment mm. um which is about an hour long roughly for me personally um and take history history is like the biggest indicator of usually what's wrong and if you can delve through that you can usually find what's the cause is um I think the beauty of me working in sports uh, like pitch side for example is I've seen injuries happen in real time Mm. so when people come to your clinic they might be like three weeks later so you actually haven't seen the actual thing that's happened um so having that prior knowledge of seeing it Mm. acutely and then further down the line is really helpful I think the good thing about me is I'm quite sporty myself Mm. so I kind of know when people can just kind of go through it but equally when they should really rest and just you know address the problem properly rather than being over cautious Mm. um all the time you know sports you're always going to have a niggle daniel peters talking there to carrie overton you can hear the full interview on our listen again service accessed via the on-air menu on our website at meridianfm.com For more information on the work Danielle does, you can visit bodyhealthclinic.co.uk. That's bodyhealthclinic.co.uk. And that's it for the latest edition. We've got all the information on the features you've heard today on Twitter at SundayReview107 or on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. I'll be back on air next Sunday morning from 10am on 107 Meridian FM or on meridianfm.com or you can download the latest podcast. Until then, take care and have a great week ahead.